0: Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and as always, I'm joined today in studio by President Wyatt. Hi, Scott. Hello, Steve. It's terrific to be with you today and excited to talk
1: to our guest.
0: Yeah, this should be a really fun podcast. So this is a continuing uh, another continuing part of our innovation focus and uh, I don't know that maybe a lot of people from the outside know but there are publications of course that are insider publications for every line of work really magazines and news reports and other things and I think without question the, the, the longest running biggest most important 500 pound gorilla probably in our work um, is the Chronicle for Higher Education that's certainly uh, something that we all subscribe to and we um, we watch and we're excited when we're mentioned there and so forth. And so we actually have a guest um, from The Chronicle joining us today.
1: And The Chronicle is a great source of information for us about uh, interesting things going on around the country. We're welcome, uh, we're delighted to welcome Scott Carlson, who is a senior writer for The Chronicle. And Scott... Um, I think you've been writing for the Chronicle for 20 years.
2: That's right. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. Um, 20 years of writing about colleges and universities. You've got, Indeed. You have got to have seen some interesting things in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's...
2: Seen seen a lot of interesting things. Last time I was in Utah, I actually visited a prison with uh, Utah State University, so that was that was interesting and saw saw the prison education up close. Um, I was just talking with someone about that the other day. But seeing colleges go out of business, uh, um, you know, it, 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 it's given me the opportunity to um, visit with potters who have the largest wood-fired kiln in North America. I've seen um, you know, kill, you know, uh, university cops who have, who've gotten into trouble shooting folks have, you know, reported on that, have reported on a bunch of things, but, and in some ways, you know, over 20 years, you'd think you'd see a lot of change in higher education, but, you know, really, I, I was just saying to someone the other day, uh, you, a lot of the things I was talk, we were talking about in 1999, uh, when I started at the Chronicle, were still, Talking about today and still grappling with today it's a slow-moving industry in some ways, but I think it's I think in the recent years now it's primed for for good changes in the future
1: when when you think of innovation um, your your comment about things kind of look a lot like they did look twenty years ago <laughs> but when you think of of innovation in colleges and universities, what comes to mind to you?
2: When I think of innovation, I think of, you know, I really think about startups, these these startups in higher education that are really unusual and different, and, and you, you don't see them come along very often. And, you know, one of the places that I, I think about um, is a place uh, called the College of the Atlantic, which is up in Maine. And, uh, you know, startups often in higher education are small colleges. They're very nimble. Um, they can, they, you know, they can move rapidly uh, toward one idea or another, and they can set up an environment that maybe defies expectations in a certain way. So, some years ago, I wrote about COA, uh, which is in Bar Harbor, Maine. It was established in the late 1960s, uh, which was this time in higher education when uh, there were a number of institutions that were sort of being formed on an experimental basis. Um, I think you saw this uh, in the early part of the 20th century and then, you know, later in the 1960s and 70s. And most of those colleges didn't survive, um, but COA did. Um, it only has 300 students. and uh, It was established by a fellow who was a dean at Harvard, um, and it was established with the intention of trying to uh, provide another source of attraction and, and Economic development for this tiny town of Bar Harbor, Maine, which at the time when it was established was this uh, was this town that had once been very wealthy. It had been a, a vacation area for the Rockefellers, among others. Um, but after a fire had swept through the island, many of the rich folks who spent their summers there abandoned the place for for other places, and so they they said, you know, we need something that. Will carry this place during the off years in the non-summer times, and they came up with the idea of this college that didn't have it; it had only one major, which was human ecology, and that could mean anything. Um, And so they they set no rules around that, and they also wanted to establish a college that was very small in its nature, and the reason they wanted to do that was because they didn't want to develop the kind of disciplinary silos that would then divide the college along these kinds of territories that you see now in in higher education that we're still trying to break down in higher education. So, you know, what what came out of that was just this very interesting place where students are encouraged because of the size of the place. Students are encouraged to discover their own path. They're given support from the the professors and how to do that. Um, but they're told up front look this is a place that's very small and we don't have the resources that a larger university would have We'd, you know we don't have the ability to build million dollar lab buildings and so on. So it's up to you to write some of the grants and to go after some of the things you want you know to buy the equipment you want to do for the research you want to do. And it gives these students a real grounding in a kind of entrepreneurial spirit I think Um, because they have to do things themselves, because they have to discover things themselves. Reminds me a lot of another really small place, um, you know, established around innovation, which is Goddard College, which is over in Vermont. Again, same thing going on there, where it's a very small college. It was a very small college. But when it it was established by Tim Pitkin back in the 1930s, uh, one thing that they they said was, we're going to establish a college where people can come here and they can determine their own path toward the future. And so you, you enroll at Goddard. And the first thing that they ask you is, what do you want to learn about? And so you can declare what you want to learn about. You can decide your path. And then they say, okay, how do you want to show what you're learning? And the students inevitably pick, you know, a range of of, you know, books to read, essays that they'll write. Maybe they'll do presentations. It's different for every semester. And then they're in constant contact with a kind of faculty advisor who guides them through this process. And they, they say each and every time, you know, this is the most challenging and rewarding educational experience I've ever had. Uh, So I think about those things when I think about innovation in terms of the, from the educational standpoint, there's innovation in business and innovation in in operations and so on, and things that colleges are sort of repeating or rediscovering year after year. But for me, you know, the real interesting innovation is happening on the education space. And in those ways, at a time when, you know, the the K-12 environment, I have two kids in K-12 right now, when the K-12 environment is all about taking facts and stuffing them down the throats of of young people (laughs) You know, really, really turning them off to the beauty, to the discovery, to the love of learning. Um, We still have these institutions that put the learning first um, and make the love of learning, make pleasure uh, sort of the, the primary purpose for being there. And you know, worrying less at the, at that moment, at least worrying less about what the ROI is on the education. Not that the ROI is an important, isn't important. It, it is, but I feel like if you're going through the process with a kind of passion in mind, you'll figure out how to make, how to get an ROI out of it. That's what, that's what I feel about it. So innovation, that's what I think about when I think about innovation, I think about places like that. Um, there are other ways to look at innovation. I mean, you could look at a place like Concordia University in St. Paul, which does a lot of work on the front end to make sure that you know their their processes, their courses are are well established, that they're going to make money off of these things, that there's a market for students on the back end after they graduate. Um, People call that innovative in higher education. To me, that just seems like good business sense, good practice, and so I don't think of that as really an innovation. I, I, just, I tend to think of these more radical ideas.
1: How does how does this ROI play into radical ideas? Is if if we focus too much on the business model, does that keep us from being uh, creative, or does it make it more possible to be creative?
2: I. I think it. I think it makes it more possible. Actually, if, I mean, if, I think if you have a focus on, on, on the business model, on, on the costs of of what it takes for you to produce the courses that you want to offer, what it takes for you to to keep the the enterprise afloat. I think that makes innovation possible because you're not just taking blind shots in the dark. You know, a friend of mine, Rick Staisloff, who is uh, a pretty well-known finance guy in higher education and runs the RPK group, um, he writes a lot about innovation in higher education and has written about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of colleges that sort of, college administrators that sort of sit back and say, let's be innovative. And they, and they just sort of plow ahead without really knowing what the costs of, of doing their business is. They don't really know what the, um, what the market is for what they want to offer. They just, they just think, well, we've got a good idea and and it seems like a really clever idea. And so there must be, there must be someone out there who will buy it. There must be, uh, there must be a market for it. It's not really the case. Um, so in order to make the mission work, you have to know where the money is going and what's happening with the money. The The business side of higher education is, it, is really a neglected part of higher education for the most part, in part because higher education is just such a complicated structure in the first place. I mean, with money coming from all sorts of areas uh, in all sorts of forms, tuition and grants and public funding and, you know, payoffs from the endowment and so on. So it's, it's, it's difficult to follow all that. And and on top of that, higher education is just a very fractured environment anyway, very siloed and very big You know, for a lot of institutions are, are huge. So to try to get a handle on that, it's difficult for a leader to try to sh- turn the boat, so to speak. Um, but knowing where you are, knowing where you stand is absolutely, absolutely vital, absolutely first step.
1: It seems that some of the best things that we've done here to promote innovation is expand our business office.
0: <laughs> Just so that we have a better idea of, of how we're making a living or if we are making a living. Yeah.
1: Right. And, um, and then examining the, the costs and the benefits of different programs.
2: So, so let me ask you, let me ask a question around, around that. Do you think that you would know what it costs you to graduate, say a, a business major versus an English major versus an engineering major versus a nursing major. Do you know what it costs you down to the student for each of those kinds of majors?
1: So we we can almost answer that question if and if we had a little bit of time we could come up with exact answers. But we've we've done this with um, we have some um, kind of raw data that's out there, and then whenever we're interested in one versus another, we can dive down. For example, we've discovered that for philosophy majors, we actually, it costs us less to train a philosophy major than it, than the expense. So the revenue, when you revenue, exceeds costs but that's only because the, that's only because the philosophy majors are taking classes that are also being offered as general ed. And so, um, it's serving multiple purposes, but but this is really really complicated, as as you're suggesting. Because, well, what really are the costs, um, for anyone on campus? Because the in some ways all of the expenses support everyone. Yeah, and um, yeah. it's really hard. It's it's really really hard. And and every time we talk about well, if we do this new program. What are the costs of the new program? What are the anticipated revenues associated with the new program? But then how do we plug in um, the janitor's costs, you know, and, right. um, and everything else? Uh, yeah, right. Everything else.
2: Right. How do you, al- yeah, how do you allocate these different, these different kind of costs uh, to the departments or to the students or, how, you know, how do you... How do you count all of this stuff? It's very, it's very difficult. Um, there was a, there was a college that I profiled some years ago called Bernal University. She's down in Georgia. It's a, it's a women's college, but like a lot of women's colleges, it has, you know, a co-ed uh, graduate program and it's got some, some other sort of pre-professional professional programs that help float the boat. Um, and everyone there is aware that the, the core women's college is not a moneymaker, um, but it's the mission of the institution to protect that. So they have, they have these other sort of revenue generating parts of, of the university. And the president uh, was a former mining executive uh, who went there when I was, when I was visiting Brunel. And, you know, he said, you know, he was an academic who had left academia for a while to go work in the mining industry. And then he came back and he said, you know, when I worked in mining, we would, we would dig up rocks and we'd sell them for, Pennies and nickels and dimes, and we knew what what that was costing us. We knew everything about how things were, how how things cost us. And when he arrived at the university, he found that the the finance office was just a you know a a big stack of papers, um, where no one knew anything. No one knew what everything cost. So he brought in a, a fellow. Uh, someone I worked with on the sustaining the college business model report who did a kind of forensic accounting uh, evaluation <laughs> of the college. And um, they found, you know, they found interesting things. Um, if you looked at the, if you looked at the numbers one way, uh, yes, the women's college at the core was a money loser. Um, and the online college uh, the online distance-ed college was highly profitable. If you looked at it one way, if you if you took those numbers and you followed the students, where did the students go and what what classes did they take? It came to a very different conclusion. If the board had looked at had looked at the numbers and not dug any further and said, "Oh, the women's college is uh, is losing money. We should just dump that and go online completely." If they had made that radical decision, they would have killed the entire thing, because what they found was that the the women who were enrolled in the in the women's college were taking half or more of their classes through the online college. They were shifting over as hybrid students. So, in killing the women's college, if they were to shutter the women's college, this is entirely theoretical. It wasn't on the table. But if they had done that, um, they would have essentially stripped. Many, most of the students out of yeah. their online college as well, and they were, all would have died. So, you know, knowing the numbers, knowing where where the numbers are, is you know absolutely essential for how to plan, how to be strategic, and how to innovate um, around in this very difficult environment. I mentioned Goddard before; they took a they took that that very path that I talked about, they had a a, a core uh, college on campus that had been the, the college that Tim Pitkin founded in the 1930s. And in the 1950s, they founded something called a low residency program, which was, um, is now used by, you know, four or five dozen colleges across the country. And a low residency program is one where it's kind of a distance ed program, but you spend part of, you know, a week or so on the college campus with your cohort. And the 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 traditional college had about 200 students enrolled. It was a very very small college. The low residency program had four or 500 at the time. I forget the exact exact numbers, but it was much larger. But they were packing the low residency students in during the summer. They made a radical decision, looking at the numbers, looking at how you know how everything was sort of allocated at the college. They made a radical decision to shutter the traditional on-campus program that ran from September to May and to go completely into the low residency program all year round. So essentially, it was a, a traditional college with a traditional campus that shifted over to a kind of low residency distance ed program that revolved over the course of the year, different kinds of programs coming in weeks, you know, for two weeks at a time. You know, it's you can only do those kinds of things if you actually know if you actually know the numbers and where things are going uh, for your institution, and unfortunately, most of the colleges out there just have really no idea.
1: They don't know uh, where to begin. Well, when you were talking about this and um, the profitable part of the college versus the unprofitable, um, Steve and I have friends that have a number of movie theaters. The profitable part of the movie theater is selling uh, candy and drinks, right? And popcorn, right? So movie we're gonna... for show, popcorn
0: for dough. That's yeah. the old adage. We're
1: gonna we're gonna cancel the movies and just sell popcorn because that's where we make our money. <laughs> yeah, but but you don't then, sell any
0: popcorn if there's no movie. Yeah, right,
1: right. So what if you were the what if what if you were the next president of um, at some college or university? What would what would you based on everything that you've seen? What would you be interested in doing?
2: what would I be interested in doing? Well, it depends on where that was and it depends on what kind of institution it was. Boy, if I were the president of a small college in What's... the Northeast or the Rust Belt or the upper Midwest, I think, I think I'd be in panic mode, right? Now, <laughs> <actually>. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. You know, there's an, there's a number of institutions in that, in that range. I mean, and of course that's the, that's the geography where you find most of these small colleges. Um, it's just such a competitive environment for them, um, and, and I think you know it's only going to get worse in the future. I mean, first of all, the, the demographics are just not good, um, uh, and and the and the, the prospect of, of getting more students in, bringing more students into revenue, traditional students, traditional age students, anyway, to bring in revenue, is just it's not a good picture. You're familiar um, with on top of
1: you're familiar with Clayton Christensen. Uh, sure. Clayton Christensen from Harvard, who's predicted this huge percentage of colleges will either go out of business or have to merge into somebody. Do you agree with that?
2: No, I don't agree with that. I don't think he's right. Um, I think I think there will be there will be a shedding of some of the uh, some of the weaker institutions. Um, I think we'll see a kind of dwindling among them, but. You know, with these small colleges, I've seen turnaround after turnaround uh, among small colleges just because they can be very, very nimble. Um, But the weakest ones probably we will see probably an uptick in the number of colleges that do go out of business. These smaller colleges that either do go out of business or do merge, but they do have the ability to, you know, if there's courage in the leadership, if there's courage on the board, they do have the ability to move. Um, uh, and and change and become something else. I mean, it's happened it's happened over and over again. Um, we, we visited. Well, you
1: asked me. Oh, no, go ahead. Sorry,
2: sorry. Well, you asked me what I would be thinking about. I mean, I really would be thinking about, uh, you know, for a lot of these colleges, there's there's some basic stuff that they still are not taking care of that, that they could take care of. So one thing is to know the cost, right? We've just talked all about that. The other thing is to somehow try to tie the education to relevant outcomes and to audit those outcomes and to and to know, to, to give some assurance to parents and students, this is what you're coming here for and this is what we're going to provide for you. I mean, even beyond the sort of w- the wonderful education that we think we're providing here, we're going to start to connect you with uh, the businesses, the community around us, um, the alumni around us. I mean, there's So few colleges really take advantage of their alumni um, in ways that they could. Uh, You you look at a place like Colgate University, which holds this thing called sophomore connections. And Colgate has a really strong alumni following. It's almost cultish, right? But what they do is sophomore year for the the sophomores, beginning of the sophomore year, they have these, or middle of the sophomore year, actually, they have these uh, alumni, about a hundred alumni come to campus in various kind of clusters of, of jobs that can be, you know, people who work in media and journalism and entertainment it can be people who work in as doctors, but they also might be part of the health sciences in a broader way, or they work for pharma and they ha- you know, these, cl- these clusters are sort of defined broadly and they bring the, they bring the alumni to campus. Uh, and the alumni hold a full day session where they break off these clusters and then the students pick three out of, say, the 12 clusters or how many clusters there are. They pick three and they go and visit with these in a sort of a, uh, a large sort of Q&A session which, with these alumni and talk with them. What do you, What's your job like? What do you do? What did you major in? How did you get into that field? I, you know, if I wanted to get into that, what would I make? You know, these sort of these basic questions that... A lot of students are not getting answered until their senior year uh, in in college at at most institutions. And that gives these students a huge head start on life after college, a huge foundation for the confidence that they can have in the place where they're going to school. And it's a huge selling point for Colgate, too. So, you know, these kinds of simple things, you know, parents and students are paying all this money for for the for the degree, which is essentially a signal to employers, um, and they want to see something come of that. They want to see something come out of that. They, it, it's you know, for most colleges and universities right now, even though there's all this pressure from the government around what you know, what are your results, how are, how efficient are you, and so on, it's really a great time for colleges in certain ways because. The wage premium associated with a college degree has grown, it's doubled over the past 40 to 50 years. You essentially have to get some kind of post-secondary degree in order to keep up. That wage premium has doubled not because college graduates are getting paid so much more than they did in the past. It's doubled because people with high school only are getting paid so much less. So just to keep afloat, just to stay steady, you need some kind of post-secondary certification. And so the market for colleges out there is a really strong market to say, hey, come to this place. We're going to set you up for life. We're going to provide for you the opportunities. But the number of colleges who fall down on that, who are not, that are not giving students this solid entry into, the, into life after college, that are not connecting with students after college and sort of cultivating that relationship, it's really, it's really sort of mind-boggling.
1: That's really fun. It's just fun to listen to you talk about all that. And this this program that Colgate's doing is is really intriguing. I think almost every university has a very loyal alumni following.
2: People, every university has a very loyal alumni following.
1: Has a very loyal. It could be. Yeah. That could
2: be true. That could be You know, but in my case, graduated from the University of Minnesota. I was an English literature major. Um, I, you know, I made myself into pretty decent success. I have no connection with my university. I have no connection with my department, the English department. Um, I just get a letter four times a year saying, Hey, send us 200 bucks. <laughs> there's no, there's no connection. Hey, that's no a connection. That's
0: a connection.
2: I'm just asking the wrong for money. kind of connection. <laughs> I mean, it, it's the wrong kind of connection. If they, if they had thought, if they were thinking about this more strategically and it, you know, this is not, I, I'm not saying this from sort of any egotistical point of view, but if they, they know that I'm out there, they know that I'm doing work around writing that and work that I really uh where the my English major was really valuable and helping me right. think broadly about the world. You actually are an English
0: major that got a job as a writer. That I got that's a, job a big as a writer, deal right. You know? That is a big deal.
2: And, and and I'm making a decent living off of it. And there's students now
0: at the University of
2: Minnesota majoring English who want to be writers, who want to be journalists. But and I would gladly I go back to Minnesota, you know, two, three times a year. I'd gladly come back and talk to students about here. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is how you make, you know, this is how you make your way. And that might lead me to want to give them 200 bucks every year, but there is no connection there. There's no connection there. And, and I feel like that's the case with a lot of, with a lot of colleges, particularly
0: bigger public ones. Yeah. I, my degrees are all in music and, uh, and 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 i've had a a nice career uh, along with being in higher ed i've had a nice career in music and i i I never get asked by my alma mater to come back and say, "Hey, how'd you do that? you're one of those few musicians that actually has made a living as a musician uh for a, a goodly part of your life and your livelihood what How did that work out for you i i agree there's particularly particularly in places like English and in music where there's not a necessarily straight ahead path to a job with a cubicle uh, on day one after you graduate school and you, you kind of have to find your own way. That can be particularly useful for students, I think, um, to, to find someone that has actually done what it is they want to do, uh, where the pathway is a little bit uh, circuitous and to, and to talk with them for a little while. And and, and the,
2: you know and the and the help that these students need even well into their twenties or well into their thirties even after they leave college, I I wrote a column for Goldie um, a few weeks back about a, a fellow that I had met um, who was working at a local grocery store here, and it was you know one of these uh, it was sort of a co-op kind of grocery store organic foods and so on, and you know I'd go there to, to buy the you know, the bulk beans or whatever I was doing. And I just happened to have a connection with this guy who was stocking the shelves. Um, cause I would see him there every day. And, you know, he, uh, we got to talking and he would ask me about what I do. What do you do for a living? Oh, you travel. How do you get to travel around all the time? Oh, I, you know, I do this for a living. How did you get into that? He would ask me all these questions. And so we, we arranged to get together, um, for a beer, and, uh, you know, talk about how I got into the job that I got into. And when I'm, you know, when I was going to take him out for the beer, I I thought, well, I had assumptions about who this kid was, what he was all about. You know, he stocks the shelves at the grocery store. I figured maybe he doesn't have a college degree. Maybe he didn't do all that well in high school. Um, yeah, maybe he sort, he's sort of wandered around. Well, I, come to, I came to find that he had graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in history. He actually did quite well in high school. Um, he graduated without debt. And in graduating from Wake Forest University, he graduated from this place that you know has been featured in the New York Times and other places for having this robust career service center uh, under Andy Chan. And yet here he was stocking the shelves at the grocery store. And I've met so many students like that who got out of college, had sort of blindly majored in something that they thought they loved, or at least they found somewhat interesting. And then were sort of left school. They walked across the stage, took the degree, the diploma, left school, and then didn't really have any sense of how to apply that, how, what to do with that in the world. This is this is a huge, huge issue for high. It's a problem for higher education. It's an anxiety for families. And it's a real source of depression and shame, I feel, for the students who are trapped in that situation. Um, this is a kid who works at a grocery store. I've met, you know, young, young guys with seventy thousand dollars in debt and a, a, fl- a political science major working at a bar. Um, I met a woman who graduated from a Christian university in Minneapolis who also worked at a bar, had $90,000 in debt. And, you know, the kind of shrug and bitterness uh, that they have about their lives is, is a real issue. And it's one of the questions, it's one of the reasons why we have people like Peter Thiel and others sort of questioning the value of higher education. They shouldn't question the value of higher education, but because we're not completing that circle because we're not sort of sending folks out and uh, allowing them to capitalize on previous success or helping them capitalize on their previous success. We're sort of undermining the enterprise as a whole.
1: Part of our, part of our problem is that students come to colleges and universities. This, isn't gen, this is a generalization, of course, but so many of them come and choose a major. What they should do is come and choose a career and then pick a major that would feed that career. Yes. And and have a and have a really good objective view of that career. You know that you can major in history but you're probably not going to be a historian. So what is it that you want to do? And how can we help you figure out how a history major will lead you to that and understand the the challenges and rewards connected
2: Well, I said, I said, yes, but I wonder about picking the career first.
1: I, I think, I think you should pursue your
2: interests. Um, I think you should pursue particularly for college and for education. You should pursue what you think is going to excite you. You know, with a thing like a history major, there's a bunch of stuff you can do with that. And your, and your course of study doesn't have to determine what your career is going to be. I mean, you can, you can, shift and and move around that a little bit. One of the problems we have though is that, and this is going back to the K-12 problem, is that we're so busy shoving facts down the throats of students and having them (laughs) sit through these standardized tests and do a bunch of baloney during the day that there isn't really a whole lot of exploration or time for exploration for these 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 18-year-olds to have exposure to, oh, what is it exactly that a finance guy does? What is it exactly right. that, you know, an engineer does? What do they actually work on? You know, we have a sense of there are some careers that are that are pretty obvious on on their face when we encounter them in everyday life, but there are other careers that you never would know even exist, and there's no one telling students that these things exist. Yeah, um, well, that, needs, so, to, that yeah. needs to be more robust.
1: So Steve is the lead create, uh, lead accreditation liaison here at Southern Utah University, and and he's a musician. And I'm the president, and I was a philosophy major,
0: and an attorney,
1: and an attorney. But I didn't I didn't major in philosophy because I wanted to be a philosopher. Um, I majored in philosophy because I wanted to learn how to read and think and and write, and it and it just seemed really interesting to me. So I I had that as a major, but I but I had a career idea. I'm not doing exactly what I intended, but but I find so many people that just choose a major and then think that something's going to appear, and it might. Yeah, it might, but but it, it might not. But it might too. not.
0: It might not. It's a, it's a tough.
2: It, it really is. A, it really is a tough path, and. So much of it is embedded in what's your previous privilege, Um, to what extent uh, do your extended networks, usually through your family, to what extent can those extended networks connect you with different kinds of careers or give you a bump up or, um, you know, help you sort of figure your life out or or provide the kind of um, financial foundation that you need to sort of explore for a bit. Um, some students have more of that at their disposal. Many students have less. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of in a, we're kind of in a situation where, you know, if you're, if you're a student in the lower quartile, the lowest quartile, uh, income wise in the United States, the chances that you'll, you know, if you're a kid in that quartile, the chances that you'll get out of that quartile in the rest of your life are very slim. If you are in the, in the highest quartile, uh, the, the chances that you will drop out of that quartile are very slim. You'll, you'll likely stay rich for the, all the kids in the middle, uh, in the middle class, you have a basically have a 50, 50 chance of, of making more or less than your parents. So for them, it's a really, it, it can seem like a very pressured and very dicey sort of situation. Um, not that income is everything, but it, it, it for, for a lot of these students, it can provide—it's it, it, it's kind of one way of measuring your success um, apart from, you know, sort of the other, the other we, uh, markers.
1: Yeah. We, 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 were talk, we were talking a few minutes ago about um, some of these really small colleges that might be nervous about their future. Um, a couple of us visited several of the regional universities in Illinois— and uh, there were fear in the eyes of the administrators we talked to. They seemed to be really worried about their future as an institution. So many of the – so in that, um, that whole region, you know, it's just become extremely competitive. The number of yeah, high school well, graduates is going down.
0: Yeah, the demographics are not in their favor for sure.
1: Yeah. What would you do? But well –
0: what would Il- you do?
2: Illinois is a special case because the state is so screwed up. Uh, you know, I did. I, did, I With
0: I did apologies working, to our uh, listeners in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> no, they
2: know it. They know it. <laughs> they know it. <laughs> one of my colleagues was at dinner with uh, with someone who worked uh, worked at, at one of the colleges in Illinois. And um, at the dinner, she said, you know, yeah, I spent... Um, I spent a number of years working for, you know, the the state government in Illinois, and my my friend sort of quipped at the dinner and said, well, I'm surprised you're not in prison. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) No, Illinois, I I did some work at Southern Illinois University some years ago um, when Glenn Pichard was the president there. And, uh, you know, Illinois had basically stopped uh, dispensing money to the state universities, and you know, there was discussion of them having to borrow money even just to make payroll. Um, it, it, it's a it's a really screwed up situation, and and the deferred maintenance at at some of these colleges, like Illinois State University in Southern Illinois, is just would just blow you away. I mean, uh, really, buildings that were absolutely rotting. Um, so for, but those are state universities. And so at some level, there is a commitment from some of these states to keep those state universities going in part because those state universities are an economic engine, um, in these small towns that they're in. Yeah. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing else. Um, it, for, the, for the, for the, for the, for the private colleges, it's, it's a dicey situation because there's no state to sort of back them up. Um, they're sort of on their own to some extent. And, you know, on top of the demographic pressures, then there's also situations like what you find in New York State, where New York State just announced the Excelsior scholarship where anyone with a hundred thousand dollar family income or less can go to uh, college for free. There's more of these sort of free college plans that are popping up. Well, that, you know, that decimates the enrollment for a lot of these small private colleges that would normally attract students um, that wouldn't be going to the state university, but now the families are looking at the state universities and saying, well, this is free. So let's just go there. And it, it, it also then, uh, decimates the enrollment at, uh, state universities in, in, uh, neighboring states like Pennsylvania. So I, last year I talked to the, some of the, the, uh, some of the, the institutions in the the Penn State system yeah. that we're having trouble attracting students because all the student there was a number of students that were going to New York universities for free. So, yeah, it's it's a tough situation.
1: What uh, we've talked about some of the innovations you've seen. Um, we're kind of a mid-level sized um, regional public university, eleven thousand students in sort of a rural community in southern Utah. And uh, we've seen substantial growth and um, some really exciting things like that. But if you if you think at all of all of the kind of mid sized regional universities around in the country, what what are the innovations that you've seen that? Um, in addition to what we've talked about, anything in particular, or even if it's
0: for? not particularly innovative, but. But unusual, uh,
1: or, or allows for innovation yeah. to
0: happen.
2: Hmm. Well, you're, you're you're catching me off guard here. I would say, you know, you think about a place like VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, which is run by Michael Rao, uh-huh. um, and Rao had, before that had been at Central Michigan University, and you know, VCU has been growing per, in a pretty robust way. And part of what they've been doing has been to have this connection between uh, you know the University, of Virginia Commonwealth, and the city of Richmond. Um so that you know there is there's an interesting play there in the sense that and this is what my next report for The Chronicle is going to be all about, this interaction that happens between these you know these universities, whether they're Large or mid-sized or small, and the communities around them, and how the how the partnerships between these places can start to pump up, um, uh, how, how they can start to lift each other up uh, in the sense yeah. through kind of synergy. Um,
1: so looking in and, you your know, community and finding ways to partner, help. So, sorry, what was that? What, what, did, yeah, so question? yeah, so what you're describing is the the community. Uh, the university and the community find ways to really connect broadly through the community. And that would include, as you mentioned, alumni and jobs and other kinds of things.
2: Well, and in in meaningful ways, in meaningful ways. You know, I think of something like uh, the Sustainable Cities Initiative, which comes out of the University of Oregon. Uh, You know, that was started by these three professors in the architecture and urban planning department there. And what they were doing there, what, what happened there was these these three fellows were just sort of sitting around at the end of a semester and were talking about these students that they had in their class that semester and the students who had turned in these, these ideas um, based on these hypothetical projects. Um, and there were some brilliant ideas embedded in some of these papers, some of these final projects that they were doing. And in most cases, though, the students didn't care if they ever got those papers back. You know, they got the grade and then the papers wound up in the trash, you know, and and the students walked away happy. I got an A. I'm done. What they decided to do was to to work with other faculty members on campus um, to try to create this SCI, the Sustainable Cities Initiative, where, where they would Harness the work that students were doing in a range of classes. It could have been urban planning and architecture. It could be journalism. It could be political science. It could be marketing and communications. And then they would partner with one city each year in Oregon, usually a small city, um, and then unleash the students in these uh, in this sort of uh, measured way over the course of the year on the problems of this particular uh, city. So for example, you know, you might have a city that has a waste problem, it has problems with traffic management, it's got signage problems, it's got, um, you know, it's got economic development problems. The students then would attack these problems in in a kind of co- in course over time and present their ideas. the the city would end up paying the university about 200 to $300,000 for this service, you know, for the year long contract. And they got that money by plucking little bits of money out of each of the departments within the, within the city government. So for example, waste management would have $10,000 laying around, Um, you know, parks and rec would have 20, you know, that they could contribute and so on and so forth. In the end, you know, for 200 dollars to $300,000, the city got millions and millions of dollars worth of uh, professional, semi-professional. These students were, you know, some of these were graduate students, mm-hmm. some of these were undergraduate students, but semi-professional advice uh, that was really unbiased. It wasn't like hiring a consultant. It was, you're hiring these students who would come up with radical ideas. Consultants, as you know, you know, they, they kind of, the old saying about consultants, they look at your watch to tell you what time it is. Um, the students <laughs> would come up with ideas that were really, really out there and really, really different. That was beneficial in two ways. One way, you're getting ideas that no consultant is going to give you, and it's the latest thing coming
1: out of academia. That's right. On one hand. Because they're more creative. On the, on the
2: other and more creative, more creative. On the other hand, it provided a kind of safety distance for the city because the you know the city could could take these ideas, present them at a public meeting, you know, a, a sort of a poster session, right? And if if the citizens came back and said, you, you want to do this with the waste management plan on the edge of town? Are you kidding me? That's crazy. We're never going to do that. And then the, the city could distance itself, saying, actually, this is, <laughs> well, this, this just is a, a project we're kids. working on with students. It's not a big deal. We're not taking this very seriously. Don't worry about it. But what happened more often was that the, they would the students would present these radical ideas, and the citizens would come, see these ideas, and they'd say, yeah, that's what we wanted you to do all along. You know, you should, you, this is what we've been thinking about. This is great, and um, and then the city folks are heroes, and the students get a, a, a great education out of it. I mean, a, the students who participate in this said this was the most valuable education they'd ever gotten in their time at, at Oregon. And I remember in particular what one young design student told me. She had in her class, she had been uh, assigned to redesign uh, the signage she and the rest of her, her students had been, had been assigned to redesign this, the city signage for the city of Springfield. And they'd come up with a bunch of really different ideas. And, at, you know, during one of their critique sessions, they had the city engineers come down and talk with them about their ideas. And one of the city engineers said, I, you know, I really like what you're doing with your sign here, but how would we bolt that to, uh, to a stake in the ground? How Where's the bolt hole? And she said, you know, all the time I've been in – college she'd been in college three years up to that point she said no one has really asked me anything practical like that how would i bolt this <laughs> to, the, to the side, you know and that's she said she found it tremendously valuable and validating um so there's there's tremendous opportunity out there if, if colleges would just sort of get out of their space a little bit and think think a little bit more broadly and and develop these these partnerships
1: This has been been interesting, and it's been um, um, helpful for us to read what you're writing in the Chronicle and uh, get all these different ideas. It's a constant source for us of um, creative ideas.
2: Great. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest over the phone today Scott Carlson, a senior writer, for the Chronicle for Higher Education. Thanks to Scott for joining us, and thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash president's podcast where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast the original music for this podcast was composed by jack barton a master's degree student in music technology at suu for more information about southern utah university please visit www.suu.edu